Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Good evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm Adders in the studio and I'm the executive producer of Surviving Society. And here are some of my favourite clips from the year. And I would like to give a round of applause for the now doctor... Chantel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen, listen. What? No corrections, fam. No, no, no corrections, fam. Listen, listen. I thought I was going to get through the no, whole listen, episode listen. without you bringing it up. Man has to drop it. That's like an A star star business. A star star business. Well, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I genuinely mean this. There is absolutely no way I would have finished this PhD without surviving society listeners and guests and the surviving society broad network and family but also my brothers Tiso and George so thank you so much I'll invoice you (laughs) George just said he'll invoice me all joint enterprises and all stop and searches is another sort of battering down of the working classes and and the you know certain communities it's exactly what it is and and it's deliberate it's not it's not a construct that's out there we think we've got the best criminal justice system in the world we are the only country in europe that sent children to prison for life the youngest people we are a boy and a girl were both 13 years old when they were given life sentences for murders that neither of them committed and that is one you know that is one thing that nobody can argue with us because we've got the dats, we've got the proof, we've got, you know. And why would you want to send a 13-year-old child to prison for life? What do you expect to get at the other end of that? What do you, what sort of kind of individual do you expect to get? Also, I don't think people realise that when they send you to prison for life, although you may get an 18-year tariff, you come out, you're on a 99-year licence, so you've only got to have one little altercation with someone in a shop, with your wife or whatever, and you're recalled and do another two years to that situation uh, so, sorted out. I think people have a kind of abstract notion of what law is. They think it's just and it applies to everyone, but as we understand, especially in joint enterprise, the law is racialized. Mm-hmm. It's class, class bias, yeah. and so when you see when people see that in reality, when you see that, you're thinking, well, what I was what I was taught to believe in, in school. It's not true. Yeah. It's not borne out by my experience. When my son was in, he was in Belmarsh, and because mm. I just got into this because of this situation, and and Gloria was saying like it's a racist, it's like a ethnic minorities, blah blah. And I said to him, "Do you think that it's uh, racist, Tom?" And he went, "Have a look around us." And it was the the, the visiting hall was full of black yeah. kids. I've yeah. never been to Felton, but I've been told Felton's all black. It's Mm -hmm. all black. And one of the things, like when we've gone back and we've tried to be politicised about this and go back, one of the pieces of data that came out that was the most telling piece of data that you could hear the pin drop in the the Justice Select Committee was that Ben Crew, Susie Hussey and Serena Wright, three academics, did a a study on mandatory sentencing because people don't realise that either, that it was Blair's government that brought in... um, mandatory sentencing so before that the judges had they had discretion and they could say all right well I could see you were with this group but you didn't actually commit the crime and I can I'll give you three years of rap on the knuckles they can't if you're convicted of murder under joint enterprise you then have to get exactly not always exactly the same as the principal because the principal's honor amongst thieves will often say yes it was me governor I did it I put my hand up 
he'll get a lesser sentence than the guy that's saying I didn't do it, the pl- guy that pleads not guilty. So the, say the principal you know, gets an 18, you've got other guys that are doing 25s because it's a knife crime. But they don't realise that that's mandatory. The judges have no discretion to do that. And that's another thing that we've got, why we have so many people in our prison system that are lifers. I think we've got one of the biggest lifer populations in the country, in the world. I think it's important to to have these discussions about what we mean by communism. But the other thing then is to, something we've thought about quite a lot, and part of the reason why we set up the Materialist Lawyers Group, is to think through specifically some of the like tensions and contradictions that emerge when you try to pursue communist politics at the same time as practicing law in a very racist, like imperialist, liberal legal system, right? So the, the simple answer to the question, why do I call myself a communist, is because basically... As, as you guys know, right, there's a class conflict between labor and capital, right, between workers and, and bosses. And that's kind of like the main thing that orders um, the totality of global class relations, right? And it, and it relates to things like imperialism. But really, that class conflict, at the risk of being simplistic, that is it. There's a massive fight going on between workers and capital. And we have to sort of pick a side. And it feels like conservatives side with capital very openly. And like, uh, radicals side with uh, the workers and then you have these liberals who kind of like refuse to pick a side in the conflict and they just almost want to manage the conflict but never really maintain it in the interest of the workers they don't actually want the workers to win now, I do want the workers to win to overthrow existing class relations and to create a new society and like all that is solid will melt into air and all that kind of stuff I, I want a revolution and so within the category of radicals I guess I call myself a communist because it feels like that's the um, that's the kind of subset of the radical tradition with which I identify the most. It's the it's the subset associated with the the Russian Revolution in 1917. Um, there are some really difficult questions to to ask ourselves about the things that have been done in the name of communism, things like Stalinism. Like we do have to have these difficult conversations about the communist tradition. But I just think the left is quite re- weak right now, especially in this country, and we're kind of encouraged to throw our traditions out. And it's like they, it's like we think if we just rebrand that will somehow be more powerful. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Like, I think it's important for us to take the rough with the smooth, to um, to look honestly at the communist tradition um, and nevertheless to continue to identify with that project, the project of 1917. Um, and then as far as legal practice is concerned, the law is just like Marxists and, and communists are really underrepresented in the legal system. And I think it's really important to um, to basically subordinate your legal practice to a prior set of political convictions and I think when you do that, you can use law in quite a radical way. But if you don't, I think you get really lost in the liberal legal system. In a system that's, especially the British system, that's very ancient and has a, has a tendency to bias in a, of a particular way. How do you ha- how do you be radical in that space? With difficulty is the short answer. Like, um, it's really difficult. I, the first time I did a Crown Court trial, um, I, I got made a tenant uh, at my current chambers and they said... Um, you can draft your kind of public-facing web profile, right? So I, dro- I drafted this profile that was very honest. I was like, I'm a radical, I'm pro-Palestinian, I'm like uh, d- deeply committed to the Palestinian struggle to overthrow Israeli apartheid. Like, <laughs> oh, shit, you said that? Yeah. You said that to them? No, so I, well, I said it on my profile. Because I was like trying to be real. I was like, look, this is why I became a lawyer. I became a lawyer because Pal- before I was a communist, I became a, I, became, I decided to become a lawyer. I just could Stop more- laughing. Oh, no, me. No, me I can imagine their face. They would have went, what the fuck? Man? Yeah, well, this yeah, was kind of yeah. it. It's like, I mean, I'm not saying I've got it all right, but I think that what happened with the judge was he was like, it was like, as I say, first time in front of a jury. He sent the jury home on like the second day of the trial or whatever. I was co defending. So we had another defense barrister and then we had the prosecution barrister. So the three barristers have stood there and this. 
judge just sort of said like, Mr. McGuinness, I've had the opportunity of reading your website. <laughs> and then he like mentioned that he was a landlord. And obviously I've been railing against landlords in the profile. I've been like, you know, sort of like he like backs, um, you know, workers who've been kicked out of their homes. He's like familiar with like how to kick a landlord around court kind of thing. Obviously I paraphrase. I was a bit more professional on that. But broadly I was like, look, you know, you want to struggle against your landlord? Like, like instruct me, right? I'm, I'm happy to like really go, go at a landlord, right? And he, this judge is like, I'm a landlord. And I was a bit like, why are you saying this in court, bro? Like, this is bias. Like, why are you, why are you biased against my profile? And the answer is because my profile was nakedly radical. And it, it does pose questions. It's like, people have come to me and said, is it in your client's interest for you to be so openly identifying with this uh, controversial political tradition? And I sort of think, well, you can spend your life pretending to be something you're not. And there comes a time when you actually have to say, like, I am in favor of a revolution by which this entire bourgeois legal edifice will be overthrown. And like, I don't have to hide that. Why do I have to hide that? <laughs> Sorry, George is having a. Yes! George is having a. Yes! <laughs> no. Frank, I've got to give him a mic drop for that. Like, see, 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 I've got to give see. him a mic drop. In reality, what this is is an example of we do tell our stories, we do share them orally, we do write them down, we do write the books, we transform the knowledge that you lot told us to transform. And we literally have the ability to save everybody. Oh, damn, I've been, I've been, I've been saying, we, we can, we can. Say, we save everyone. Not just, Not we're just saving me, everybody. everybody. Listen, like, like Neo, fam, we're like Neos. Done we're like Neos, fam, it's, that's what it is. It's the Matrix, fam, it's That's real. what we're here for. We, real. We're, we're here to save everyone. everybody. We are not and just- that is, And that is why Black, the black radical tradition is so threatening globally because we're taking everyone Listen, with us. Listen, on the list. George, we've made the list. The government's <laughs> coming for us Everybody. now. We've made the list, fam. Listen, everyone's uh... coming. Now, it's, it's because of these claims that law is especially good at enacting politics, whether it's through uh, statutes or whether it's through the courts and the tribunals. And this is because law claims to be transcendental. It claims to sit above politics. And this is, I, I think, a myth. So laws and, and, and legal institutions and judicial institutions have created this fiction around their institutions that um, what, they, what they do is fundamentally um, apolitical. And because it's apolitical, it therefore kind of immunises it from the kind of criticisms that we would level at political institutions. Because all lawyer, law, lawyers and judges are doing are applying and interpreting laws. They're not doing politics. It's not, it's not something that can be fundamentally contested um, in that way. I'm going to give him a mic drop for that. <laughs> like, the connection between modern... Like, because I feel like at the moment we're in like a period where we're like kind of like looking at the law to like help us out of crisis. But what Tanzel's reminded me of is that this thing is actually part of how society remains so inequitable, even though it present, presents itself as the thing that is protecting us or making things equitable. I always understand the law or the legal framework as in freezing in power. So it's a group of people who decided who were at the top We've enacted these laws and it freezes in power because power is something that flows to and fro. So how do I stop power going back to those people? I make laws, right? And this is how I see law. It's, it's from it's from society. So even when you're talking about British law, when you watch any kind of like swashbuckling thing where they're kind of getting pirates, it's the king's law, the queen's law. Mm. So it's never been this abstract thing ever. Well, Tanzel was saying it's, it's because of the Enlightenment, yeah, basically. But I yeah, don't know, but well, I don't know how you get that twist. How they made it so, how, so it seems transcendental because in its actual in act, how it's enacted on the spot, 
it's always for a particular group mm, or mm. person or serving serving or yeah so in in how you experience in your day-to-day tells you how it really is however theoretically when you when, it, when you come to understand it you mm. think the law's meant to protect me but we know it doesn't right yeah i mean i mean this is a really important conversation that we can maybe come on to which is, you know, you know, can the law save us? What what kind of transformative potential does the law have? Um, you know, if any, or is it fundamentally and foundationally implicated in, you know, oppression, exploitation, those kinds of things? Mm. You know, is is a legal is a legal project basically kind of salvageable, redeemable, or do we need to kind of basically, you know, burn it burn it to the ground and, and, and imagine burn something? It. Uh, burn <laughs> something it. <else. laughs> Effectively, you're asking what should the left's strategy be, right? Mm-hmm. And where should, and, and as part of that question, where should we be allocating our resources? And I think this is something I had to think about when I chose to become a lawyer. And it felt like a very individual choice. It was like I am going to go and personally prosecute Israeli war criminals. When really, the struggle that emancipates Palestine is the same, which related to the struggle that emancipates all of humanity. It's um, it's a it's a collective struggle. And so I think the the short answer to your question is that we need to answer it collectively which means we need to find institutions in which we can we can have these strategic conversations and then collectively carry out a strategy because if we're all doing it individually oh maybe i should be a lawyer maybe i should be a doctor maybe i should go to palestine maybe it's like we'll just be like for every person going in the right direction someone will be going in the wrong direction and and even if we went in any direction it would be good if we did it all together but if we don't then we just don't have the organization so getting organized and answering answering these strategic questions is a key part of the picture and then i think in britain a massive part of the problem is that the british left most of the British left does not understand imperialism, does not understand what it is, and therefore has no theory about how to act internationally. And so we have this so-called methodological nationalism where we think, oh, if we just get into power in Britain, then somehow we can implement socialism in one country. It's absurd. Tell that to all the Bangladeshis who are making uh, our clothes in sweatshops that collapse and kill thousands of people. Tell that to the millions of people in Iraq who've been displaced by British bombs. Like, we need... Uh, to think internationally. And I think the, the state of political organization is so bad at an international level that even to ask the question, what would an international political organization look like? What would a revived kind of communist international look like is a vital question. And I think part of the way that I've personally attempted to approach this, and this is a very naive approach, and I, I'm really happy to be criticized for it. And you know, if, if, if anyone listening to this thinks I'm chatting shit, then just DM me or whatever and say, like, I think you've gone wrong, comrade. But <laughs> I think... I think we need to be creating institutions that actually operate internationally. And so that's why I've taken time to go and like spend time at the Learning Cooperative, because there's something really important about being in a, an organization where every week I speak to someone in Gaza, I speak to someone in Lebanon, I speak to someone in Venezuela, and it makes those places less abstract. It's like, oh, my, I've, I've got friends and comrades in these places, like someone in Brazil, someone in Mexico. So we're trying to build this international institution that can operate, can think, can act internationally. And and my hope is that out of that kind of class struggle, like out of that kind of organization, organic ties will emerge so we can actually start to try and think internationally. Because right now the British left does not think internationally. What about nationalism? That's that's that, 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 that's the that's, that's falling aside. So whenever you create international international issues or supranational supranational organizations, this is the, always the thorny issue. Brexit, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the short answer is that we need to create the um, we need to forge an international working class agent that's capable of acting as the international working class. And to do that, we need to find ways of dismantling national borders and stepping into a true uh, like coalition of the international working class. What the working class lack, what the what the upper class have, 
that solidarity. So, uh, yeah, at, yeah. So posh, the, posh solidarity is real. So the elite solidarity <laughs> is crazy, right? And it, and it stretches across international boundaries. Capital is international and labour isn't. And, and, and Marx, in, in John Smith quotes this in the book I was mentioning mm-hmm. earlier. He, Marx said in, in like 1870 or something, so 150 years ago, mm-hmm. said, um, you know, cap- I paraphrase, right? But he basically said, capital is international. Mm-hmm. The uh, the working class institutions need to become international. 150 years ago, he was saying our working class in- institutions need to become international. And here we are in 2022 20, nearly, and the British Labour Party is still being like, oh, if we can only get power in Britain. And it's like, mate, international. It needs to be international. I'm from the ends, right? And I'm always going to be from the ends. That's my habitat. It doesn't matter where I go. And that's that's when I say I'm black British, I'm I'm I'm, I'm more specific than I'm an East Londoner. This is not my shoes. This is this is okay. <laughs> this is this is where I operate. I'm an East Londoner, and where I travel, I'm just bringing my East Londoners with me. So I I'm not black British. I'm not even a fucking Londoner. I'm, I'm something more specific. And you're like I said, so we're talking about Stuart Hall's idea of new ethnicities and all those kind of things. Said the idea of hybridity, this cross fertilization of making you something. There's something unique, always something you always becoming. And this is where we're at, right? So it's hard to talk about essentials when we talk about essentializing, when we talk about the we, mm. but we have to when we have these big conversations, right? Because we have to identify one who we're speaking about. But in actuality, it's this process of becoming all the time. So will that Britishness, that Britishness, like you said, is a tool for me. It, it gets me certain places. It's that kind of social capital. It's mm. that, that thing that gets me through the door in certain places. But when I'm in those spaces, I don't really want to be there. Like when I worked in the city, I thought I had to be there. Uh, but I don't want to be there. Where I want to be is in the ends. And when I speak, um, and when I'm looking at drill music now, it's, this is a way of the young kids operating in the spaces where they want to be. Whereas before, our parents are preparing us for a world that doesn't want us. And by rights, you've spoken about yourself, you didn't really, really want to be there. No, not at all. You do random jobs, you do all these random things. I've done all these random jobs to find a space where I wanted it to be. But I ended up in a space where I thought I had to be, get all the things that go along with it, money, the cars, the clothes, but I wanted to be in the ends. One of the things that I've kind of been concerned with, particularly with my own research that looks at how black people manage and negotiate living in predominantly white places in England, struggling to be in the spaces in which race and gender of kind way race operates and gender and is also gendered becomes heightened means that these spaces where we quote unquote want to be have even more pressure on them to to receive us which actually in itself can i think sometimes create more pain what i mean by that is like as a people like we are like imperfect like Mm. we're human beings so like it's like when you find out that like another black person has wronged you like or like when you like feel disappointed like when you hear something from like someone that's in government that looks like us like you because you try and like find spaces in which you see yourself when you feel reflected back it puts more pressure on those spaces to be you're 100 percent right so in those spaces yeah. where you see them little drill beefs and all that, or you see, even in like, in where you, you've got like um, sound clashes and all them places that people get upset because when another black person does something bad to them, yeah, take it to heart, man. Yeah, it and hurts. It, and then we start talking about those old tropes like, listen, we need to build our own. Why are you, mm. why are you against your own people? It's always someone who looks like you is against you. All those old tropes. Yeah. But again, when you reach out that humanness, but it's that pressure we put on in, in that space because we don't want, it's a space that accepts us as who we are. Mm. And so you feel betrayed when someone does something human in it. Mm. Which they're always going to do, right? Mm. That's very much the case for me. I'm 
conscious doing this today that at this very moment I am feeling a little bit like the university is hopeless. But I know last week I was maybe doing things that I felt were productive and there's sensing me being there. And next week my position will probably shift a little bit again, depending on what's going on at that time. But we should be comfortable in that. We should resist simplifying things and the university is changing, we're changing. And thinking that through collectively is is a process that we should cherish. And one of the ideas that we think through is this idea that you should struggle where you are, that we take from Stuart Hall. Um, I think David Gilborn picked it up from Stuart Hall. That It's one of those that Stuart Hall, I think, just said it as a kind of throwaway comment but it's Stuart Hall and when you look at it there's something really really valuable in there and Walter Rodney says something similar about this idea that we should struggle where you are and there's several reasons we think that is important but one is it allows us to position ourselves within a much broader movement so if we just do the little bit that we can do within the university and people in the arts are doing the little bit that they can do from where they are and you know even people are possibly in local councils and uh in the criminal in in lawyers and you know activist lawyers if we're all struggling in our different spaces collectively then that's how we we have more influence it's not just about us being the saviors as individual academics and you know as you you coming up as a young activist or me at least you kind of think oh I can do it all I'm gonna change the world but that's a really uh, you're destined to be disappointed if you're if you take that position and you're also going to be unproductive to you know you're not going to be working in solidarity with other people so this idea I think allows us to I want to say have more realistic expectations, but I'll caveat that by also saying we should be utopian as well when, when we the dis- can. The disappointment, rep. like I just, when you talked about the disappointment, I felt it. And obviously like, as everyone, as the listeners know, um, this podcast is an intergenerational podcast because of the age gap between me and Tiso. So Tiso had to watch me go through my 20s, like heartbreak after heartbreak and he's like see see listen, I told but you but listen <laughs> you know what it is right when I see people coming out I see mad, the mad energy the mad hope yeah and I think as you get older you see you see, you can see it right when you see people who are motivated uh, engines of change so I think like Mega Evers Malcolm X and Martin Luther King all died before they were 40 mm. these were young men Franz Fanon died when he's 36 that's where the energy is that's where the hope is and I see when I read your book I can see that hope working institution and the optimism, the hope for change, and that's important, man. These are important concepts. Hope is an important concept, man, because it motivates you to do better, to change society, and that's what you need now, especially at a time like this where we're so polarised. Mentor said, I kept raising my hand to tag questions. So these highly educated prosecutors will ask children questions that they will answer in the affirmative because they don't want to say, oh, I don't know what you mean. They don't want to seem stupid, so they'll just say yes, you know, or they or they just won't say, I don't understand the question. Mm. It's really unusual for... So there was that, those kind of issues in this one, you know, like we were looking at children anyway. When Alex Henry was 19 at the time, but he was now autistic. Lord Thomas dismissed them both on the grounds that the children did have a fair trial. The media is wrong. They did have a fair trial. And Alex Henry... His mother is now a psychologist. 
Sally, she's trained to be a psychologist. So she taught her child how to pretend to be autistic, to pull the wool over the eyes of the, Sorry, <laughs> the lead what? expert in the country. Sorry. That's, Sorry. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking so, at. So what's his name? The Lord, what's his name? Thomas, he's gone Lord now. Thomas. Lord Chief Justice Thomas. Chief Justice Thomas said that the mother of Alex taught her son to be neurodiverse in order to get away with yeah. joint enterprise. He's pulling the wool over your eyes. And the top, Barra Cohen, yeah. he, he's the top specialist, said that he has got autism. Mm. And he also said, because he's been interviewed, I've, I've met him, I've met him since, Simon, and um, we said, why do you think he did it? And he said that was a policy decision. So that's not based in judgment. That's not based in any judicial kind of law. That is like, if he lets that one person through, Alex Henry, based on the fact that no one had diagnosed autism, then we can go back, that sets precedent, and we can go back with all the other kids that we've got in the system that have got autism or have got learning difficulties. Or have got... So that's why he was quashing a lid on that. He didn't want any other cases to come through. So then the last one we went back with was Laura Mitchell, the girl I told you in the car park, looking for her shoes. She hasn't, didn't even know anyone was murdered. Really thought she had a shout, really thought she had a shout, because it was a referral from the CCRC, for your listeners who don't know what the CCRC is, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which was set up after the Guildford Six and the Birmingham Four, so that we wouldn't have these miscarriage of justice again. So... The CCRC referral, we're like, wow, this is going to be quite a big deal, you know, Laura Mitchell. So we're in court. Laura's not brought to court, and this was Lady Haylett. And um, Laura's mum's here. Laura's there on a screen. She's crying her eyes out. She's crying her eyes out because we've been to appeal courts enough now. You know, you just know she's going to get knocked back. You could hear hear it from Lady. Lady Haylett started talking about conditional intent. So even though Laura hasn't committed a murder, because she started a fight about a taxi at the beginning, she had conditional intent that someone would then go on to commit a murder. And I started laughing at her. I just looked at it and thought, you just think we're stupid. You really think that you can keep changing the language. After Jogi, they changed it, parasitic accessorial liability, so joint enterprise has gone away. Because if you look up joint enterprise, you're going to get us. So then they tried to turn it to power. And now she's talking about conditional intent. So they conflate all these kind of legal concepts because they don't know what else to do, because they are wrong and we are right. And we will keep doing this and keep embarrassing them. And the only way we're going to win, unless Lisa gets her tits out, which she probably will do, <laughs> the only way we're going to win is, <laughs> is if we humiliate them into a position, because they're not going to do it because it's the right thing to do. They have to do it just because they are absolutely backed into a corner where people, especially the communities that are directly affected by that, and that is, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody... Do you know what? It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's got someone in prison or someone who's... It has to be any citizen in this country who cares about our criminal justice system and why it's important that we do not send families to prison. We've got a mum and her two sons in prison. We've got brothers in prison. We've got... You know, you talk about North Korea doing this kind of thing. You don't talk about this in the UK. And we do. We do. And and it's a massive embarrassment for them. So they'll keep trying to bury it. They'll keep trying to bury it. Till Lisa gets her tits out, we're, we're buggered. Um, we call ourselves the bitches. Yeah. yeah. Don't fuck with the bitches because you've picked on the I wrong bitches. I fucking love that. I absolutely love that. Absolutely yeah. love that. <laughs> Absolute legends. I think this is this is probably the saddest, most frustrating show we've ever done, but I also think it's the best show we've it's ever done. It's the most done. revolutionary thing, right? Yeah. Because you're taking on the system the system's fucked you man. guys Jimmy. take on the system all we're doing is hearing your stories and putting the map well, kit and putting it out there and 
for coming on the show. Thanks you for guys are absolute heroes, legends. Um, Pete, everyone, you need to look up Jengba, get in touch, get involved, do what you can to get people to understand and realise this huge, huge mass miscarriages of justices that are happening on our doorsteps every day. Um, yeah, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Please Welcome. follow us on Twitter and follow them, follow them, follow them. Yeah. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 